contemplate God's love this morning. And I'm going to ask that you open up your Bibles to John chapter 3, verse 16. And as you turn to John 3, 16, I'd like to pray before we begin. Let's pray as, as you turn to John 3, 16. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And we thank you because we know that in your word we find life. And Father, I pray that as we contemplate your love this morning, that you would put our minds on the things above, that we would lose all distraction this morning and just focus on you. Father, we know that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we pray that this morning you'd help us contemplate on your love, knowing that your word does not come back empty, Father. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. John 3.16, we've been on this for quite some time now, contemplating on God's love. And I want to read this to you again, because there's another aspect of God's love that needs to be explained as as we continue on through the gospel of John. John 3.16 begins this way, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I'm going to read just the first part again. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I I want you to notice in this one verse, we get three characters. We have God, we have the world, and we have the Son. And, and there's two verbs here. God loves the world, or, or as, as other translations say, in this way, God loved the world. And then it says, He gave His Son. So three characters, God, the world, the Son, two verbs. He loves the world, and He gives His Son. And immediately we have to ask ourselves, who is this God that loves by giving his son. And secondly, why is it that his son is, is an expression of God's love? I love what Fred Sanders says in his book, Delighting in the Trinity. When you look at the son, when you look at Jesus, it's a loving God that you get. When you look at Jesus, it's the God of the Trinity that you get. And again, What we see in these passages is that there is a God who loves, and he loves by giving his son. Now here's what's interesting. In our world today, the topic of love is very popular. If we're honest, it's it's become the prevalent message of most churches Unfortunately, though, oftentimes what you hear from many pulpits is, oh, Christians are Christians because they love their neighbor. And so often you think of passages like, by this you know that you are his disciples, by how you love. Or you can't say that you love God if you don't love your neighbor. And and obviously these are biblical passages, but, but the thing is that oftentimes when we speak on the subject of love, it is very horizontally focused. And so some churches go as far as saying, 
Well, it doesn't matter if you're Catholic. Look at how much the Catholics love their neighbor. Look at how much the Mormons love their neighbors, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Adventists, the Muslims. Look at how much they love their neighbor. And and the problem with this view of what equals Christianity is how we love our neighbor is that that actually is not true. Because I can love my neighbor and say I don't believe in God like the atheists do. Does that make them Christian? No. And so we can't divorce love from a vertical view of God, meaning that love needs to be understood also in a doctrinal sense. And again, most churches today say, no, we don't need doctrine. We just need to show love. But that's, that's wrong. Atheists can show love and reject the God of the Bible. We actually need both. The, the, the Pharisees in Jesus' time were very doctrinal or vertically related, but they were absent from expressing love. But in our church context today, there's a lot of messages on this focus of love horizontally, but we've rejected where the source of this love comes from. And the point that I want you to see is that simply loving our neighbor is not what the Bible teaches about love. That does not make me a Christian. If I just love my neighbor, it does not mean that I'm a Christian. What makes me a Christian is if I affirm certain doctrines like salvation through Jesus Christ alone. That makes me a Christian and I ought to show that love to others. Affirming the doctrine of the Trinity makes us Christian. If, if we say that God is not triune but we show love to our neighbors, I'm sorry, but we're not really Christian. We're something else. We're a different religion. So doctrine and love have to go hand in hand. And this is, in a sense, what John 3.16 is pointing to. Yes, God loves the world relationally, but it begins with his essence. And what I want you to see this morning is it's a simple position. This is, this is what I want you to understand, and we're going to see this clearly. But what I want you to know is that God is love because he is trinity. To put it another way, if God was not Trinity, he cannot be loving. And we see this in John 3.16. There is a God who loves by sending his Son. Immediately we see there is God and the Son in this verse. What does that mean? How do they relate to one another? And so what we're going to see today is because God is Trinity, his love is relational. Because God is Trinity, his love is eternal and because God is is Trinity he gives his son in love again all of these three points are pointing us back to this reality that we see in John 3 16 because God is Trinity he is love so let's look at this first point because God is Trinity he is relational I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 1 we're going to read verses 9 through 11. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And, and I want you to think about this as you, as you turn there. Many of you have, like myself, probably grown up in church, and so you'll remember being in small groups where the leaders are like 16, 17-year-old uh, youth, and, and, you're in, and you're in a group. And, and, and at some point in a group, you get little Johnny to ask the group leader or the youth leader, Can you explain to me what the Trinity is? 
And the youth leader, you know, 16, 17-year-old kid, kind of like looks up to heaven and says, oh, yeah, yeah, the Trinity. Yeah, well, well the Trinity is like, it, it's simple, really. The Trinity is like an egg. You know, you, you have one egg, but you've got the shell and the white and the yolk. You see, it, it's, it's one thing, but it's also three. Or, or a, another illustration here, the, the Trinity is, is, is like water. It's like H2O. Sometimes it's solid, sometimes it's liquid, and sometimes it's, it's gas. You see three types of one thing. And, and, and the, the, the person asking the question goes, ah, yes, oh, okay, I get it, problem solved. But is that really what the Trinity is like? And, and the answer is actually no. While, while these things in nature can get us to, to understand how three things can also be one, that's not what the Trinity is like because what's missing in these examples is the relational value. There's no relationship between solid, liquid, and gas. There's no communion with them. And what we see with the triune God is that he's not just one God in three persons, but these three persons are in relationship with one another from eternity past. So what is this relationship like? Oftentimes people say, well, what can I use then to illustrate the Trinity? Answer, the Bible. You want an illustration for the Trinity, go to where the Trinity is found, the Bible. And so Mark chapter 1 is a perfect passage to go to where you can see that God is triune and what this Trinity looks like. So let's read Mark chapter 1 verse 9. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now notice here. Jesus is coming out of the water. He's just finished his baptism and immediately the Spirit is coming upon him. What does John 3.16 say? God loved that he gave. You see the two verbs? God's expression of love is always giving. And here we see that because the Father loves the Son, he gives. What does he give him? He gives him the Holy Spirit so that the Son could accomplish his earthly ministry here on earth. But this is the point. It is an expression of God's love. God's love is expressed in giving and he gives the Holy Spirit, to the Son. But now notice the conversation. He says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father doesn't simply have a Son. He loves His Son. There is a relationship. The Father gives to the Son in relationship to the Son. The Father expresses words of love to the Son. We see that God is relational. And again, God is relational because He is Trinity. We see this clearly here. There's a father and there's a son and the father has given the son his Holy Spirit and the father has said, I love my son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So immediately we see that there is a relationship 
between the Father and the Son, and this relationship is a loving relationship. The Father loves His Son. Now, here's the point. If God is not Trinity, who does He love? If God was not triune, He has no Son on whom to love. There is no relationship. God can't be in relationship if there is no one to be in relationship with. Well, this is the point here. When John 3.16 says God is love, what it means is that he's always been love. Why? Because he's Trinity. He's always been loving his son. Now, why is this good news for us? Go with me to Deuteronomy. We'll look at a passage in the Old Testament. God has a relationship with the Son, but why is this good news for us? As you look for Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32, Mike Reeves in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, says, if God was not Trinitarian and just a single person God, salvation would look different. He would offer forgiveness, but not closeness. And then he goes on to say, he may save us, but he would never Love us, end quote. In other words, what, what Mike Reeves is trying to show here is that God doesn't simply love creation and is distant from it. No, God loves creation and he's close to it. But why? Because God has always loved his son. We're going to see this as we go through the, these passages today. But look at what God says in Deuteronomy speaking about Israel here. Chapter 4, verse 32. God invites Israel to do this. For as now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and as from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. God is asking Israel to contemplate on what this relationship of God with Israel is like. And so he goes on to say, did any people in the world, did anyone ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Answer, no. No one has. He keeps going. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation, by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? Answer, no, this has never happened before. He goes on to say, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, he brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before the nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Verse 39, know therefore today and lay it in your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath there is no other. What makes God unique 
is that he is a loving God who, as we saw in the New Testament, is in relationship with his son. But because God is relational, he's also in relationship with us. Now, what we see here is that God's love can be specific. God can love the world, but he can specifically love a people. In this case, God has poured out his love. He's given a special love to Israel. And and we can say the same thing here about us. Has anyone ever sent his son to die on the cross? Answer, no. Has any other God invited us in such a way as we read in our scripture reading this morning that while we were still sinners, he gave his son to die for us? Answer, no. And oftentimes people say, how can God love the world but have a specific love? And the answer is quite simple, friends. Think of marriage for those of you that are married. You may love your friends. You may love your brothers, your sisters, your parents. You may even love your children. But there is a special love that you share with your spouse. It's a love of intimacy. It's something that only you and your spouse share. It's an intimate kind of love. This is the same kind of love that God shares with those whom he saves with his people. And, and this is why when you think about all the metaphors that God could have used between Christ and the church, the one he uses is the metaphor of marriage. You know why? Because Christ is in a special relationship with his bride, with his church. Now, does God love the world? Absolutely. But there is a special relationship that he has with his bride. It is the bride that, the, that Christ dies for. It is the bride that, that God's love is specially poured over. And we see this idea. But this is the point that I want you to see. We can have a relationship with God because God is Trinity. If God was never in a relationship with his son, there would never be a son who was sent to bring us into relationship with himself and with the Father. So again, what we're seeing here is that when John 3.16 says, God loved the world, immediately we're taking back to the idea that God loves because he is triune. If God was not Trinity, he could not be loving. Now, this brings us to our next point. We see that God's love is relational. He's in relationship with his son, and by default, by, by extension of that relationship, we have been brought, brought in to this relationship as well. So God is in relationship with us. Because he is Trinity, he is relational. But then this brings us to the next point. When did God become relational? When has God shown love? Was it when the world was created? Was it with the, when the Son was begotten? And so our next point is, because God is Trinity, His love is eternal. In other words, what we see in Scripture is that God has always been Father. And because He's always been Father, it means that He's always had a Son in whom He loves. Therefore, God's love exists ever since he existed is why we say that the love of God is an attribute of God God has always had a son whom he loves now 
Go with me to John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, we get to see an intimate conversation between the Father and the Son. And it is a beautiful conversation. I I want you to look at these verses with me and analyze the words of Jesus here. John 17, verse 1 through 5. Here's what it says. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, notice what he calls God here. He could have said any other name, but he calls him Father. Notice that it's important here how the Son relates to God. He calls him Father, giving us the idea that God has always been Father. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now notice the relationship here. The Father gives glory to the Son. What does John 3.16 say? God loves And how does he love? By giving. When does he do this? He's always done this. God is Trinity, or or sorry, God is love because he's Trinity. We, We see this clearly here. He glorifies the Son. His love is an expression of giving, and he gives glory to the Son. But now notice the passage. What does the Son do? Does he simply just receive glory back? No. He gives it right back to the Father. So in just this verse we see the Father glorifies the Son, but the Son also glorifies the Father. This is the eternal loving relationship in the Trinity. Verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now again, notice that while God loves the world, as John 3.16 says, we get a hint here that whom the Son has this special love for is whom the Father has given him. Now again, we will touch on, on this election aspect of it as we go through the book of John. This will become clear. But for the sake of today, what I want you to see is that God gives to the Son a people. Why? Because that's how God expresses love. And again, we see these two actions in John 3.16. God loves, and what does a loving God do to express that love? He gives, and here he gives to the Son. Friends, this is what God has been doing for all eternity. He's been loving his Son. He's been giving his Son glory, and this translates to the economy of salvation, or it translates in the incarnation of Christ. As God has given the Son in eternity past, He also gives Him when He comes in the flesh. He gives Him a people. Verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, we're getting into this language of John 3.16, that God also, as he loves the Son by giving, shows his love to the world by sending the Son. Do you see that? that? That this isn't something new for God, this is something that God has always done. Verse 5, now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We see that Jesus has a glory before the incarnation. Jump with me 
to verse 24. Again, this is the son in a conversation with his father. And here's what he says in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Did you catch that? When does the father love the son? Before there was ever a world. Because God is Trinity, he is love. Now, in order for you to see this, I'm going to do something radical this morning. I'm going to compare our God to his counterpart in our culture, Allah. Where, where we affirm that God is one God in three persons, the Muslims affirm that, that Allah is one God, one person. And the question is, if God is simply a God in one person, can he really be loving? Many pluralists in our day say, yeah, the God of the Christians is the same as the God of the Muslims. They're just, they're just different culturally. It's a cultural difference. Now, is this true? And in order for you to see this, let's imagine... That the God of Islam is the true God. That Allah is the true God. And what I want to show you is this distinction. So I'm going to do something that we'll, we've never done and we'll probably never do again. I'm going to read some portions of the Quran. On how the Quran talks about its own God. Because what we need more on Sunday is of the Quran. I'm, I'm just kidding. Again, we'll probably never do this again. But I want you to see how emphatic the Quran is that their God is not triune. So here's what it says. Say not Trinity. Desist. It will be better for you for Allah is one Allah. Glory be to him. Far exalted is he above having a son. You see the emphasis here. God does not have a son. The God of Islam does not have a son. Another one. Say, he, Allah, is one. Allah is he on whom all depend. He begets not, nor is he begotten, and none is like him. What the Quran is trying to stress here is that God is unique because he has no son. That God is unique, and they use language here that's found in the Bible. He does not beget. Where the Bible says that God has an only begotten son, as we see in John 3.16. Here, the Quran is emphatic that no, God has no son. The only problem is, does this really make him unique? After all, Baal claims this. Dagon claims this. Other deities claim that there are no other gods besides them. But in fact, that does not make God unique. What makes God unique is that he is one God in three persons. But here is the question that Muslims have to answer. If this is true, can God be loving relationally as we've seen? Can God be loving for all eternity as we have seen? And the answer is, how can he if he has no one to love? So here's how Muslims answer this question. Option one, he loves the world or, or he loves his eternal word. So some Muslims say, oh, no, no, yeah, God, God is loving before there is a creation or Allah is loving before there is a creation because he loves his word. But is that really love? Where's the relationship in that? 
Where is the relational aspect in that? And the answer is that's not love. That's like me saying I love to swim or I love to run. That's not love. That's a hobby. I don't love. Swimming can't love me back. Running can't love me back. There's no relationship in that love. Now, other Muslim scholars try to argue for Allah's love in this sense. They say he loves in anticipation or looking forward to the moment when he'll create a world where he can express love to that world. But that in itself creates problems as well. Because in order for Allah to love, he needs a world. This makes him a needy God. A God dependent upon creation in order to express love. So Fred Sanders in The Deep Things of God says this beautifully. God's love, our God, the triune God, His love, this is the distinction with His love and Allah. God's love is not based on need or sadness. He does not yearn for us, for He has always had the Son whom he loves. You see the distinction here. Allah eternally cannot be loving. Relationally, he cannot be loving because he is not Trinity. How can God love if there's no one for whom he can express his love to? But the God of the Trinity, the God of the Bible, the God of John 3.16 can love because he's always had a son to love. His love isn't simply relational from all eternity. His love is eternal. And friends, you can check this. There are some Muslims that say Allah is not a loving God. They teach this theologically as a theological doctrine, but not our God. Our God is loving. And because he loves his son, and because he's always giving to his son, we can rest assured that he loves us as well. And if God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, this means that his love is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. This is why Paul says in Romans 8, verse 38 through 39, for I am sure, other translations, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why Paul is sure that no one can separate us from the love of God because God's love is eternal. And here's the point that I want you to see. If God is not Trinity, He can't be loving from all eternity. He would have no one to love. But when John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His Son, the emphasis that it's trying to bring us back to is that there's always been a Father in heaven. And there's always been a son, and their relationship with one another has always been a loving relationship. Again, God loves because he is Trinity. If God was not triune, he could not love. 
His love is eternal. His love is relational. And we can rest assured in these things as far as our relationship with God goes. But then we get to a third aspect of God. It's an interesting one. Point number three, because God is Trinity, he gives his son in love. Now, again, if God was not triune, who does he send? How can God send into the world if he's a one-person God? Who's he going to send? And this is the point, again, that John 3.16 is reminding us that, yes, God loves. And how does he love? He loves the same way he's always loved, by giving. Only this time, instead of giving to the Son, now he's giving the Son to creation. But here's the emphasis. For what? Why is God showing his love in this way? By giving his son. And again, in the scripture reading, we notice that part of Christ's work here on earth was to satisfy the wrath of God. I want you to go with me to 1 John. We've read this quite a few times in these past weeks, but I want you to see an interesting aspect of God's love as he gives his son. 1 John chapter 4, I'm only going to read verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So this is, again, echoing John 3.16, but now look at verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, here's the purpose right here of why God sends his son, but that he loved us and sent his son for what? To be the propitiation for our sins. Now there's a big theological word, propitiation. What does that mean? How does God express his love? This relational God who loves his son, who's loved his son from all eternity. How does he express his love through his son by propitiation for our sins? The word propitiation, simply put, we see this in the Old Testament as well in Leviticus 16. It's it's simply stating that there is a sacrifice made to appease the wrath of God, and the beneficiaries of that sacrifice are no longer enemies of God, but are now friends of God. Or they're in a right relationship with God. You see the emphasis here. As the Son dies, we are put in right standing with God. Isaiah 53.10 clarifies this. It says, yes, It was the will, the literal translation is, it pleased the Lord to crush him. It's speaking of, it brought pleasure to the Father to crush the Son. And it goes on to say, he has put him to grief. Now, now here's what I want you to see. Many Christians, Christians, when we talk about the atonement, and, and friends, trust me, 
in, 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 in future years, you're going to see more and more pastors argue this route. There's a lot now. But they deny this aspect of atonement. Here's, here's the rebuttal. Here's the objection. What kind of loving father would crush his only begotten son? And so what they try to say is, no, no, Jesus, yes, he dies on the cross, but it's not to appease the father's wrath. Now, now why is that a problem? The reason why that's a problem is because we're literally left with two other options as far as God sending his son in love. Option one, Jesus doesn't appease the wrath of God. He dies to buy us back from Satan. Now, that may sound good. A lot of us may go, oh, yeah, I can, I can work with that. But if you think a little bit deeper, what kind of God are we speaking about here? If God has to buy us back from Satan, who's ruler? Who owns the world? It ain't God. Uh, to, to illustrate this. For those who rent apartments, you may live in an apartment, but you pay your landlord rent. Why? Because he owns the building. If Jesus is buying back us from Satan, that's not good theology, friends. That gives me no comfort. That, that does not explain the loving God that John 3.16 is trying to show us. If Jesus is buying us back from Satan, Satan has authority in this world and not God. I can't live with that. And it's false theology. It's wrong theology. The Bible is clear. Satan is under the feet of Jesus. And you and I can rejoice in that truth this morning. That leaves us with one more option. Well, he simply didn't have to die. It's just the way God wanted to show his love for sinful people. But now think about that. If it's a monstrosity, as some would say, that Jesus dying on the cross and the Father crushing him makes God a monster, well, this view makes him a monster ten times more. Because this view says, well, he didn't really have to die that way. He could have just shown love in another way. Jesus isn't appeasing anyone. He's not accomplishing anything. He's just simply showing love. But, but again, that's the problem. What kind of loving father lets his son die this type of death when he didn't have to do it? When he could have shown love in any other way? And the answer to that is not a loving father, not a good father. The point that I want you to see here is that the atonement doesn't make God look less loving. It makes him look more loving. Now, again, the problem with us is that we want to philosophize the God of the Bible instead of actually looking at how Jesus speaks of the sacrifice on the cross and how God speaks of it itself. Now, the point of Jesus' death, you see it in 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. I'm just going to read this so that you can see it uh, in John 4 verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him. As a result of the cross, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We see the triunity here. God loves by giving and in this sacrifice we have been given the Holy Spirit. Why? Verse 14. What is the Holy Spirit's role in all this? We have seen because we have the Spirit, we can see this love. 
We can testify that the Father has sent His Son to be Savior of the world. What is the point of the cross? Why does God show His love in this way? Why does the Father express His love by giving as He always have, allowing His Son to die? Here's the reason why. The Bible is clear. This is what the Holy Spirit helps us see. When we have the Holy Spirit, we can see this clearly. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Again, friends, we need to stop philosophizing or, or, or trying to come up with philosophical views about God. The Bible is clear on why the atonement was necessary. It's always been necessary to grant salvation from the Old Testament times all the way into the New Testament. It's the way God grants redemption or forgiveness of sins. Blood, as Hebrew says, needs to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. This makes God loving. Now look at Philippians 2, 8 to 11. It talks about, this is God speaking on the incarnation. And being found in human form, this is Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus is humbling himself willingly to die on the cross. Why? We've already seen this in eternity past. But we see it again here in, in, in the incarnation or what we call the economy of salvation. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed him the name that is above every name. Now notice this, as Jesus dies on the cross, we see the glory of his name. If Jesus does not die on the cross, we would never see this glory. But it goes on, verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. This speaks of worship. And it goes on, verse 11. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Again, why does God send his son and lets him die on the cross? Because when we look at the cross, we can do exactly what this verse says. We can see a loving Savior, a loving sacrifice, and we can confess the name that is above every name. We can worship the name of Jesus Christ. If there is no atonement, there is no worship of the name. But look at how verse 11 ends. We confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of who? Of God the Father. What's the point? It's the same conversation in John 17. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. Now, we don't get to see this unless God sends his son, and crushes him on the cross. So what's the emphasis in Philippians chapter 2? That as we look to the son, we see a loving savior. But as we look at this loving savior, we remember John 3, 16. It was God's idea. 
We've already seen this in this series. It was God who put the plan before the foundations of the world. It was God who set this all in motion. So as we look at the Savior, as the Spirit opens up our eyes to see the glory of the Son, we're also reminded that there was a loving Father who sent the Son. You see the point. As the Father crushes the Son, we are reminded of His glory before the foundations of the earth. And as we look at the beauty of the Son, we are reminded of the loving Father who is in relationship with His Son, who is loving the Son for all eternity and who gives His Son the only way He knows how to express love, by giving to a sinful world to a sinful humanity. This is the point, friends, because God is Trinity. He is love. This is the point. As as we get, uh, I'm going to ask the band to get ready and, and maybe sing a song, but because God is Trinity, He is love. He is in relationship with His Son, and by extension, He's in relationship with us. He's eternally loving the Son, and by extension, we can say His love for us is eternal. It's never changing. And because He's always a God who loves by giving, He sends His Son in love to die for sinners. And this is why I love the old hymn. This is why we can sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Friends, God is love because He is Trinity. And because He is Trinity, we can rest assured that He loves us as well. Let us worship as we continue on this morning.